This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. First, I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, Credit Intel. Knowing the financial health of retailers is crucial for the success of your retail-related business. That's what Credit Intel is for. Credit Intel analyzes the financial health of hundreds of publicly and privately held retailers in different sectors. With a subscription to Credit Intel, you have access to comprehensive analysis of retailers' financial condition and their expert analytics team. Visit creditintel.com for more information. Hey everyone, hope all is well. Chris Ressa here. I'm on the Amtrak train on my way down to Washington, D.C. from Newark, Penn Station. Today on Retail Retold, we have Kyle and Sarah from CBRE. Kyle is a restaurant broker with a really interesting career path, and I'm excited to bring him on the show today. Before he was a restaurant broker, which is a pretty new career for him, he was a restaurateur. And before that, he was a chef. A career path we don't see that much, and I think he brings a unique perspective to the industry and a unique perspective to this show, and I'm excited to have him on today. But before we go there, I wanted to give everyone some perspective. I've been seeing a lot of things out there on social media about people trying to educate themselves in their field of choice, and people are digging in. I think that's great. One thing that I think would be extremely helpful to people is to spend time networking and educating themselves with people outside of their industry. Sometimes we get caught in our own industry, in our own companies, in our own business, and we lose perspective. We miss on trends. We can't be innovative. One of the ways that I try to stay fresh is to connect with people outside of my industry. If you're in retail leasing, sales, you're an investment sales broker. Talk about what's going on to a pharmaceutical sales rep. Go grab lunch with one. Go grab lunch with a sales rep for some major corporation. Find out what they're doing. How are they handling things? What trends are they seeing from buyers? If you're an entrepreneur in retail, connect with an entrepreneur in a different business category. Some manufacturing or distribution. See what's going on in their world. How are they handling challenges and problems? You will be fascinated if you spend some time after a couple months of doing this at the ideas you can bring to the table. It's great to network in the business, in your own business. It's great to network in your company. Read everything you can on your own business. It will help propel your career. But around the edges, spend some time with people outside of your business. And I promise you will gain some insight on trends, ideas, and be able to innovate like you haven't before. Thanks for the time today. I hope you enjoy the show, everyone. Welcome, everyone, to Retail Retold. I am excited today. Today, we have Kyle and Sarah. Kyle is on the national restaurant broker team for CBRE, and uh, it's a really cool platform, and I'm excited to have Kyle on the show. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Thanks for having me, Chris. I uh, I appreciate it. It's very cool. So you are a... 
you specialize in restaurant brokerage and you know the restaurant industry has you know grown over the last decade so how did you get into specializing in restaurant brokerage how did you end up where you are today so i spent um about 16 years professionally working in the hospitality industry um you know everything from you know basically when i was a teenager i started working in the restaurant business i graduated college thought i was doing the right thing and i and i worked down madison avenue i worked for an advertising agency i worked for credential securities doing um financial advisory stuff and then after 9 11 i was like I don't want to do this. This is not what I'm cut out to do. I'm not interested in it. I don't love it. And I enrolled in culinary school. So I went to the French Culinary Institute and I spent 16 years working um, in the hospitality industry as an executive chef, as a food and beverage manager, and as an owner operator. Um, so about two years ago, um, I left my restaurant that I started with my partners and um, Got my real estate license and here I am. So you were, what was the restaurant that you left? So I started uh, with my buddy, a concept called Pulpitina here in Westchester, where they are two locations, um, East Chester and in Larchmont. And um, yeah, I mean, they're still rocking and rolling. And what kind of food is Pulpitina? There, you know, we were, there's a, quite a few of them now. And we opened in 2009, I think it was. And it was a basically a leveled up pizza and pasta place. Um, we kind of wanted to make a place, it sounds silly, but a place where people actually wanted to eat that wasn't overly conceptualized, you know? So take those basics that you would get at a, um, for like a strip mall slice joint and just level it up. So my partner had worked at a lot of high-end restaurants, a lot of high-end Italian restaurants. And then my background coming in, having run some operational stuff, um, we basically bootstrapped the hell out of it and, and launched the first location uh, in East Chester in 2009. And, and what were you doing in between your, in between when you decided you, you wanted to get into hospitality after you graduate uh, culinary school? What did you do between there and Pulpitina? Um, so after I graduated culinary school, I, I really just kind of kicked around everywhere. I worked in the city. I was an executive chef. You know, I basically worked my way up from line cook to executive chef pretty quickly. I worked in Hoboken, and then right before we started Pulpitina, I was a executive chef and food and beverage manager for a restaurant group in uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands in St. John. So I was there for about three and a half years, and that's actually where that concept was born. My partner and I uh, came up with it just like this over uh, over like a FaceTime. If I put you on Beat Bobby Flay, what is your specialty? What dish are you bringing to the table that you do better than anybody i'm very simple so i grew up in a sicilian household a plain pasta and and you know some great uh homemade sauce will, will do it for me but that's not going to cut it for me against bobby flay i just i would love to see your <laughs> ingredient you know i don't know i like to just kind of come up with things on the fly right now i'm feeling like a very asian -y thai kind of food thing with like lots of herbs and lots of texture so i don't know but i would love the opportunity that's for sure that'd be a lot of fun <laughs> All right. <laughs> my, with the rigatoni, with you know, marinara is not going to do it, but I, I could, I could come up with it. It depends how good the rigatoni is. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. Yeah. The so you leave Pulpitina. Was it contentious leaving? Is was it? It was very contentious. You know, 
I, uh, partners are meant for dancing. I don't think they're meant for restaurant business. <laughs> you know, it was a lot of finger pointing, got ugly, lawyers got involved. But at the end of the day, you know, I really am a big believer in that you, that kind of stuff is a lesson. And I think that it, life kind of teaching you things. I was ready to move on, but didn't, couldn't really figure how to get out of it. Um, so when it got contentious, it was like, okay, this is my way out. And I know I can figure out my next move. No, it's a, it's a shame. And, you know, I, I really hope that everything, you know, all the success in the world to them, it's just a, you know, business things, not a personal thing, but um, for sure, you know, the partnership stuff was sticky and it wasn't a good breakup, but in the end, it was a lesson learned. What was the lesson? Um, really do your homework on your partners, you know, and really have a clear understanding of who's doing what in the business and the expectations you have for one another. I think that um, that coupled with not necessarily being on the same, you know, we weren't on the same path. We weren't understanding exactly what the clear cut future was. We were throwing a lot of stuff at the wall and hoping that it stuck. And, you know, winning kind of fixes everything. And we were very fortunate enough to, to grow from literally zero dollars in our account to a four and a half million dollar a year restaurant in a very short period of time. So when things are, are going well, everybody's all good. And then you start to hit little bumps in the road and then you start to see the cracks in the armor. And, and that's kind of what happened with us. So um, I, I'm sure there, I mean, it's proven that there are restaurant partnerships that work, but um, I think it's a clear delineation of who's doing what, uh, what they're expected to deliver on and what they're not expected to deliver on. Um, I think that's really where we went wrong. Makes sense. Not the first partnership that fails won't be the last, but Glad you learned some lessons along the way. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, and really now I think as it relates to <clears throat> what I do now is I just, I have a real soft spot for those people because I know what goes into, you know, borrowing money from your family, from your friends, or, you know, taking a loan out against your house. And then, you know, the amount of work that goes into it. So I would like to be there as, you know, more than just a, from a real estate perspective, from an advisory perspective in terms of, you know, you don't want to be here. Like, well, where are you take the garbage out here? Or this neighbor doesn't look like he's going to be too friendly to you. Have you thought about that? You know, there's no train near here. Where's your staff going to come from? You know, things that you don't necessarily think of, or maybe you just need a sounding board for. I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, one led me to another. And you pivot that, that partnership dissolves, and then you pivot to real estate. Why real estate? There's a lot of different avenues you could open up another restaurant you could have gotten to a different sector why real estate you know i was always drawn to real estate i had invested in real estate um i was interested in the process um when we were expanding you know i learned a lot on the fly like what's an loi what is you know what is ti dollars why are they giving us money where's the money why we don't see the money like i learned a lot from that and i just started to get i started to learn more about it so right when we were sort of dissolving the partnership and, and things were getting nasty, we were actually in the process of looking at a third location. So I was essentially doing what I do now, you know, uh, along with a broker by my side. And, and we were trying to navigate that. And I learned a lot from her. And, um, you know, when I had a chance to let the dust settle a little bit and figure out what my next move was, I realized that, you know, the restaurant industry is a grind. And I had spent you know, 16 years head down in the business, the last 10 as an operator, which, you know, when your life, you know, not your life, but your, your, your career and, and, the, and the amount of money you take home is dependent on 
your actions every day in and out of the restaurant and, and kind of comes home with you, it's very stressful. And if you don't know how to manage it, it can really eat you up. So I thought I was doing a pretty good job, but when I, you know, left that partnership and lifted my head out of the sand, it was a real eye opener to some opportunities that were there. And it just seemed like a natural, a, a natural progression. You, you mentioned before you're on the, the, the national restaurant team. And I, I speak to a lot of people on the restaurant brokerage side for on the real estate restaurant brokerage side. And there's some groups who, or and, and individuals who work on a, a national platform. They take, they're taking, you know, they're working with a restaurant and they're trying to scale them nationally. And there's groups that are focused on a specific geography. Are are you focused on a geography or are you focused and are you focused on taking one restaurant in, in all markets? So I'm, I'm new to the business, right? So I'm leveraging my experience to get any business that, that I can and provide, you know, my level of service to the local operators because that's my market. That's where I am. But I'm on a team with, and, and I'm sure you know, maybe you know her, but Jessica Curtis, who's actually kind of led me into this. She was working with us when we were um, part of Whole Patina and how I, how I kind of really started to have these seeds planted in my head. But um, right now I'm focused on Westchester and Fairfield, but ultimately my goal is, would be to work more nationally and I'm taking steps to do that this year. So, um, but it, it has to start somewhere. And, and just knowing my connections that I have here, I've been able to cultivate um, a nice little community. Totally. Yeah, I, I, I we found you uh, because you're killing it on social media right now and you got great social media game and you're, you're putting out some thought provoking stuff. And I think that's partly because of, you know, your unique background. You were an entrepreneur, a restaurateur, and now you're leveraging that into helping other restaurateurs. And I think that having that firsthand experience is definitely going to pay dividends. There's some credibility there that a lot of folks don't have. Yeah, but, I mean, that's the goal. Yeah, but a lot of that's dependent on what's going on in the market. So what is the state of the restaurant market today? You know, I'm, I'm equally like concerned but excited at the same time because for the mom and pop or the one or two unit operator, like the local people that I speak to, they're kind of a little bit grasping at straws, right? They're like, should we make meal kits? Should we use Grubhub, DoorDash, and Uber Eats? Or should we just use one? Um, should we cater to the plant-based people? You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of new things coming at the restaurant industry and trends are always there, but it seems like more so than ever, there's more to consider and it's a more a business than ever. And I think the operator has to be more than just a chef or more than just a general manager. You have to be able to really assess your business from, you know, from a P&L standpoint, from an operational standpoint, and place it in the current culture, because I think you're also now, you're competing with, you know, when I came up in the restaurant business, you weren't competing with fast food chains, right? You were either gonna go to fast food or you're gonna go dine out in a restaurant. And now there's that middle ground of the QSRs, like the sweet greens and the dig-ins and all that stuff, that are real competition and they're at a lower price point. So I think like anything else with a shakeout like this, this is gonna present a real opportunity for restaurant owners and for the good operators but it's going to be sticky for, for the guys who have been scraping by with an older model. You know, there's a part of me that thinks that there's maybe this resurgence of the white tablecloth restaurant, right? Cause now there's like, you know, that this huge white space for 
um, dining out, like the maitre d' service, sit down, bread and butter, table. No, that's, I think we'll always need uh, restaurants like that for anniversaries, for birthdays, for engagements, Valentine's Day. But it's uh, definitely a transition period and, and, and tougher to navigate than ever. If you were to boil it down to, you know, one thing, what, what, what is the one challenge? What is the biggest challenge restaurateurs, in particular, you know, local regional restaurateurs are facing today? Like from an operational standpoint or in the landscape? What, however you want to take the question. You know, I think if I put my ownership hat on, I think the, the biggest concern still is staffing. You know, I think the gig economy is cutting into the, the restaurant staff. So these 16 to 22, 25 to plus restaurant people now are people who were considered potential restaurant employees are now looking at the Uber Eats, the Postmates, uh, the Grubhub and saying, hold on a second, I can make $250 a night driving around my car, dropping off food. I don't have to go in. So I, I think that's cutting into the, the workforce a bit. So that's a major concern. Um, and I think overall, the, the, the environment, you know, the environment, I think you have to be, you got to go with your gut. And I think you have to basically stick to what your concept was when you, when you came with me, you're constantly tweaking it, but it's harder than ever. I think to block out the noise of what you should do, you know, adding plant-based, like I said, or, um, should I just, should I just get rid of these waiters and put tablets at the table? You know, there's a lot of things that, um, restaurant owners have to consider, but you know, I think the older guys are, are, are struggling who made it, you know, let's say 25, 30 years as a restaurant, that model just needs to be tweaked and they don't have the, you know, that's a big wheel to turn for them at this point. So, um, but I would say in general, so staffing is a, is a major problem. Overall, would you consider the, the, the restaurant industry healthy right now? Uh, I think it's, I think it's thriving. I think when you say restaurant industry, there's so many things under that umbrella now. I sure, think yeah. definitely thriving. Um, I think what's getting lost in the mix, and it's unfortunate, are those, you know, I grew up on the island and there's like strips of, you know, dry cleaner, grocery store, Italian pizzeria, and then like adjacent to the pizzeria is the little restaurant. You know, they make it like a little bit nicer of the pizzeria. I think restaurants like that or the little neighborhood place that is not in a market that can sustain a real downturn, like, you know, New York City has the volume, the major cities have the volume, but, you know, some of these local Westchester towns where the mom and pop operators are, are, uh, have been there for a while and they can't, they can't really grasp the third party delivery stuff or why they should have an online ordering platform. I think they're the ones that are going to shake out, but I think the opportunities are, are out there for restaurants who are, who are doing the right thing and understand the market. I think it's the best opportunity that I've ever seen. And, and what's the hottest style of food today like that, that what's so on trend right now i mean it's tough to say that it's not plant-based even i just saw a report yesterday that it's kind of dipping but you know i think somebody introduced me to a term called the flexitarian so like people flexitarian. are yeah I can <laughs> it's it's people who aren't vegetarian or vegan but they will they realize i shouldn't be eating as much meat as i am so maybe i'll add a little bit more. So they're ticking up, let's say 30% of their diet into vegetables and fruit and, and plant-based stuff. But um, so flexitarians are going to have an impact on menus. So, you know, I, I think there's, there was an onslaught of those documentaries about don't eat meat, don't eat meat, don't eat meat. Yeah. I've seen the Netflix. 
Yeah, and the truth is somewhere in between probably. So I think that's going to have a short-term impact. But I, I still think at the end of the day, it comes down to making craveable food that you can produce at a cost that makes sense where you can make some money. You know, do people actually want to come back there two times a week to eat it? So that, that, that's always going to be the case, whether it's plant-based or not. I think it's tricky to trace down, chase down the trends. I mean, remember acai bowl places? I mean, they were hot like 10 months ago, and now they're kind of like, eh. You know, so I think it's sticking to what, what a good operator knows. And just, you know, somebody told me one time that you should be Mariano Rivera in the restaurant industry and just have one, one thing and do it better than anybody else. So I, I like that analogy. I love that analogy. You know, one, one pitch that no one can hit. And, and I think that some of my favorite restaurants over the years have like such a small menu, right? They have, you know, seven, eight things and they do it better than everybody. So uh, I, I think there's something to be said to being Mariano Rivera. I mean, I, I think that, that those giant menus are a huge turnoff. I think they're phasing out, you know, the, the straight fastball concept places, veggie grills, you know, the, the halal guys, things like that are, are kind of clear what they offer. This is what we're going to do. We're going to bring it to you. And I think the numbers prove it. Your work today, are you working with more sit down, fast food, QSR? What are, what are, you, what are you working with today? Mostly QSR, you know, and, uh, and in, would say that's interesting. I never thought of it this way, but it's mostly QSR on the tenant rep side and it's mostly traditional restaurant on the landlord side in terms of a disposition. So uh, that, that's an interesting thing to think about. So the guys that are looking to get rid of their restaurants were more of a traditional restaurant model and the people who are in the market are more of a QSR model. So Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it could, could just be me, but I, it, the sample size. So there you go. But yeah, I never thought about that. Awesome. Well, that was some good perspective on the trends that are happening right now. Give me a, uh, in a, in a Twitter message of 140 characters or less, I'm going to make it tough for you. And that's old Twitter today. It's 280. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. What does the restaurant industry look like 10 years from now? Oh man. (laughs) Can I get back to you? I mean, 10 years (laughs) now, I think it's, it's a, it's going to be a landscape of a completely revi- like revolutionized restaurant landscape in terms of how we dine out and how we order in. So I don't know how many characters are on that, but <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be um, different than what we see, and I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. Okay. It's just different, and I think it's going along the way. You know, used to buy you know baseball cards at baseball shops now when you buy them on ebay you know there's just a lot of different analogies you can make you know buy groceries at the store but now you can get them delivered i think a lot all that stuff is it's playing in and i think the restaurant has always been the wild west for technology and innovation and now slowly since you know the 2000s it's been blowing a little off you know celebrity chefs multiple concepts uh multiple units and then you know you get kids graduating culinary school who hit it out of the park right off the bat and it just creates this community of there's more you know the chef now is, is a real job where back then you know when i was coming up it was kind of like sure you want to do this and it's a real profession now and it's giving people the creative landscape is giving people the creative um opportunity or the freedom to do things outside the box the ghost kitchens 
uh, the meal prep stuff or the, you know, the personal catering, personal shopping. Uh, it, it's just going to be different. I think it's just going to continue on that trend. Got it. All right, man. Well, why don't you walk us through and tell us about a story where a, you know, how a restaurant ended up in a location that it did. So, you know, it's an interesting story because I always get asked and, and I can, I can speak to it because it was mine, uh, was Pulpatina. It was, it was, if you live in Westchester, I hope you have heard of it. And I'm, <laughs> a lot of definitely Southern Westchester people have been, been wildly successful. Um, but it was a deli and my partner and I were, were what, what town are we in? Pulpatina where? Eastchester. Eastchester. Okay. So, um, it was tiny. It was eight seats, 10 seats. And I flew back from St. John to look at the space with my partner. And, you know, here I was working in St. John's like resorts, huge kitchen, sun, everything. And I flew back here in January of 2008. And there was like four feet of snow on the ground. It was like some huge snowstorm happened. And I walked into this restaurant and it was like 10 seats. And I was like, dude, are you serious? I mean, this is going to be the restaurant. And uh, we thought about it for a while and then we started building it out. And, um, you know, we, I learned a lot about zoning in that process and what's permitted use and um, what's not permitted and how that should be checked before you commit to opening up a restaurant in a certain area. So um, that wound up there just really out of a guy out of desperation who was looking to get out from under his lease, who was partners with my partner. And, um, wanted the concept to plug in there. But the problem was we weren't allowed to do table service restaurant. How did you, so the partner that you partnered up with, is this an old time friend? How do you know this guy? So I met him. Um, that's a good question. And that's also a reason why this story exists. But um, we were kind of like consulting chefs on a job out in Bridgehampton on Long Island. And um, he was leaving and a lot of chefs kind of just talk and say, Hey, you know, we should open up something together. And I was like, yeah, sure. Totally. And just didn't think anything of it. And he was pretty persistent in that. Um, hey, this is, there's going to be an opportunity. I'm going to let you know. I'm going to let you know. And that's kind of how it came to be was he, he had offered me a small piece of equity in the business to help him open it. And believe it or not, living in the U.S. Virgin Islands does get tiring. It's not, <laughs> you know. Um, so I was like, yeah, let's do it. It was my chance to move back to, to New York. and. Um, you know, I jumped at it, but we made a huge mistake in thinking that we could just jump in there and do what we wanted without confirming the number of seats that were allowed. Uh, but, but backing up for one second. So just to unpack this. So you meet this guy, this guy, uh, he's a chef as chefs probably do makes a lot of sense. You guys are like, we're going to open our own restaurant one day, forget all working for these guys. And you were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You take a gig in the Virgin Islands, you're on a boat, you're, you're, you know, having a good time, but you're a little tired. He calls you up and says, I have this opportunity. So you come back and it was a deli that he was already a partner in with somebody else. Yeah. I mean, it was foggy who was partnered with what, but they were definitely friends and there was some relationship there that, um, allowed him to loop me into this partnership and we did it all the right way, which that was another good lesson is partnership agreements. and Make sure you have employment agreements all buttoned up because you never know which way it's going to go. But um, yeah, that would, that's so, and then, and then you guys are going to try to bail this deli out. How much, how much term did he have on his lease left? 
He had a good amount of term. I mean, it, that's another thing. It was an assignment and it was an assignment from him. That was an assignment from somebody else. It was a huge mess in terms of the lease, I remember. And um, we eventually got a new lease after we, long story, bought out that original partner. When we formed a new company, we got a new lease. But um, yeah, we really just helped get this guy off the hook. But it was, you know, it wasn't cheap. Uh, we paid above market for sure. And, um, you know, again, I think we were just fortunate to really hit a home run there and, and the town loved us. Otherwise, you know, we would have been another statistic. So the deli owner, you guys pay him and he's out. Now you own this deli and you have to turn it into a restaurant. But at that point, and you mentioned new lease, does the landlord have to approve you as an assignee? Yes. And so were you presenting your business plan to him and what you wanted to do? Was there any issues with that or was he excited for a new concept to come in? So the guy that we were partners with was not really an operator. He was just kind of the money guy and the guarantor on the lease. So I can unpack this now for myself because I understand it a little bit better. But the deli guy, the operator guy, he left. So yep. the one guy stayed there and was on the lease for a period of time until we bought him out and formed a new company with our new partner. And got a new uh, and new LLC and a new lease. Okay. And so you say new lease. So that, that means the landlord was open to ripping up the old lease that you had bought from this guy and giving you a new lease. Yeah, he loved I mean, the line was out the door. It was around the block. I mean, we were, we were 10 seats and we were doing staggering numbers and with no delivery. That was before Uber Eats, Grubhub and all that stuff. So he was happy to see some life in, in, in his building. And did the, the rent change or anything like that? No, the rent stayed the same. But what was interesting was there was an adjacent space that was a former liquor store that, you know, everybody's like, why don't you just take this space, take this space. And we had plans drawn up and we did everything. And, you know, this is a whole other podcast, but long story short was um, we did the build out. The plans were approved. And then after finally opening, they came in and said, okay, wait, you know what? Actually, you can't. You can't serve food here. This is zoned retail, not zoned for food use this side. Another long story short was after about $40,000 in legal bills, um, we found out that it could be converted to restaurant use based on the code, but um, they didn't want it to because it set a precedent in the town of people combining what is a restaurant space and a retail space. And each test is very small. So that can have an impact that would resonate with them for a long time. So I kind of now understand why they were hesitant to do it, but it was really rough at that time because we had this yeah. huge space. So you have to get a variance. I'm assuming that's what you had to do. And sometimes use variance and sometimes they may have to change the actual code for that to happen, which is a big deal for them to do. And it sets precedent for everyone else. So they're usually hesitant to do that. And to make that happen cost you forty grand in in legal to make that happen. Um, and they since and they actually since changed it because of that because it wasn't crystal clear and it wasn't fair to us and it wasn't fair to existing operators. They had too many subcategories in a town the size of, of a postage stamp that it made it almost impossible to really open up anything if anything else was you know previously in that space. So they've since changed it. And so. You learned some valuable lessons, uh, you know, 
you got to you got to buy out an existing guy. You created a new LLC. You get a new lease. The landlord's happy with you. You know, it's what a lot of people may not know on on this podcast is when you're a, you're going to buy a lease and you're bu- buying that from somebody else. What what could happen is oftentimes the landlord has a say in that. Whether because you know if you're a landlord, you signed up to to have in your space, you know, Joe's Deli. And now Joe's Deli is not there and you're going to get Pulpatina. And it's like, well, what if I didn't want to have Pulpatina in my space or Pulpatina's different credit? So they have to approve that after you make a deal. The landlord typically has to approve that. So they approve that. Not only did they approve that, they everyone thought it was a better idea to just rip that lease up and, and, and create a new lease. And you guys signed how long of a term did you guys sign? 10. 10 years with a five-year option. So you sign a 10-year lease and not only do you sign a 10-year lease, you are going to expand in the space next door and you get your building permits and all that stuff and you spend all the money and build it out. And then after you build it out, the city goes, oh, I we totally forgot. You can't sell food here. Right. Oh my God. How much did it cost to build it? How much did it cost to build this out? It cost about another hundred grand to build out the space. Uh, it- it was adding 40 seats. So we went from basically 10 seats to 50 seats, which is a huge game changer. And the rent was marginal uh, increase. So uh, he was, yeah, had this vacant store with painted black windows for six or seven years. So he was happy to do something there. But yeah, I mean, to your point, all of those lessons that I learned there, you know, I'm actually partners in a, in a small restaurant in Larchmont, um, a taqueria concept that um, we launched called La La Taqueria and my partners, you know, you're, you're a restaurant owner, you're emotional. Like, why would they want us? We're great. You know, and I have to explain to them like, Hey, look, they're going to need a grease trap here. Now, where's the hood going to go? You know, he's going to have to worry about all this garbage. So yeah, he's going to consider it, but it's not so cut and dry. So, you know, those kind of things and those lessons learned aside from even the zoning stuff, which I learned the hard way is just being able to apply that, just that experience, just that year of uh, contractor meetings, um, zoning board approvals, lawyers, LLCs, um, bank, you know, funding, financing um, was a, a real crash course in restaurant ownership. Yeah, I think the, the punchline there and whether you're a restaurant or any other business on that zoning piece is uses get changed all the time and it's happening you know, at an exponential rate in commercial real estate, right? You're seeing total different uses getting put on, you know, once was an industrial factory is now a, you know, multifamily, which once was a, an enclosed mall is now a uh, warehouse and would once was a, who knows, is now an office building, retail center, restaurants. And so uses are changing all the time. And, I think the punchline is you don't spend that hundred grand until you get the use changed, right? I don't, I don't think people should be scared about the opportunity where you might have to go through the fact of getting a variance. I think the prudent thing typically though is maybe we don't spend the hundred grand until we get that. Cause if they didn't approve it, you, you would be, you know, you'd have to make some decisions, right? If we're not selling food. We're going to, guys, we're going to be in the t-shirt business in about f- five minutes. Yeah, boutique clothing wear. Yeah, I mean, I think, absolutely. And I think, and, and you can maybe attest to this, but it seems so 
it seems that the case now is landlords are more agreeable than ever to food. You know, you said, I mean, just from my experience, it's been like, you know, is it okay to put a restaurant here? Is it okay to put a restaurant here? I would say 95% of the time, people are like, yes, landlord will allow a restaurant. You know, you're going to have to build out the hood. And then it's a matter of, you know, can we punch through the roof or can we go out back? What's the shortest line? But it seems like they are, um, you know, they're more open to that than ever. Yeah, I, I think, listen, there's no secret that restaurants have been a growing use category in shopping centers. I think one of the things that, and, and for all those restaurateurs out there, that landlords are cognizant of is, you know, we've always heard this, this, the stats of, you know, how many restaurants actually fail, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, there, there's way more restaurants that fail than succeed that start up. And I think the operator and the conviction around the the business and the protection a landlord might want in the in the event that it doesn't work is critical because the only thing worse than a vacant space is a space that turns over frequently. It gets that stigma that ooh, you can't make it in that space no matter who you are or what you do. And so landlords are cognizant of that. And you don't want to take too many shots and roll the dice too much, even if there's low cost, because the reputation and brand of that space gets tarnished. And so as a landlord, you better be sure if you're putting in that new hip restaurant concept that it has staying power. And if it doesn't, then you, you better be protected on the back end of somehow, whether that's a guarantee, a, you know, you know, whatever it might be, a letter of credit, who knows. But you better be protected because at the end of the day, you know, vacant spaces are tough. Spaces that turn at a consistent pace are, are challenging. I mean, every town knows that one space that looks like it's so prominent, but then you're like, why does nobody ever make it there? Yeah, that, yeah. That, you, if you get that, you, you're you're in a pickle. And so I, I think when you mentioned do landlords want food, I think we want the right restaurant operator. Yeah, and I think that, you know, they're, they're betting on the jockeys, I think, for sure. And, you know, you'll hear that from landlords, you know, get me, get me sweet green, get me Chipotle in here, Chick-fil-A. Well, okay, well, sometimes there's not a fit, but that's their mindset. And I think that's actually, you know, our job, the team I'm on, our, our job is to, and particularly me, to have those conversations with restaurateurs in terms of this is what the landlords think. You know, like he just had a, a, an Asian place in here that didn't work. And now you're coming at him with the same thing. You got to understand where he's coming from. He, invested all this money he's now you know looking at a year later doing this process again so those conversations are real they happen all the time and i think that's actually where my role is of value because you know some restaurant owners they do what they do really well but they don't really like to feel like they they're not in the know and they're being forced some information or it's coming at them and they have to you know learn this whole new language um, so I think being able to talk to them on a one-on-one -on -one level as it pertains to the, what the landlord's issues could potentially be is, um, you know, it, you have, you have to do it and you have to do it in a way, um, that, that they completely understand and don't let ego drive their decision-making. Totally. I think one of the things that's always important to the, the listeners is getting a, a, a frame of reference on how long this took. So from the, the day you got off the plane from the U.S. Virgin Islands to the day Pulpatina opened up its doors. How long was that? Um, so the, the first, the, the, the eight-seater part was pretty quick. I think we opened up 
in the end of March or April. So they, it was January and they'd already started gutting the place and um, there wasn't much to do because it was so small. Um, but the other side was six months, seven months. And then the Larchmont location was the standard line. Oh, it should take three or four months. And it took us about eight or nine months to approve this and all that stuff. Okay. And so that's even faster than I, I would have thought, but uh, pretty cool. I guess. Yeah, but that's, that's the thing is that was being very engaged in the process. You know, we wanted to know what was going on. We brought the health department in early. So I think the more engaged you are, the faster you're buying time there. What was supposed to be the roles of you and your partner? You came up in, you say they were already gutting the place. He brought you up to do what? He wanted you to be a partner. Why? That's, that's a great question. That was, that's, you know, I think, I think what had happened was we were both chefs, which is a problem, right? So everyone knows that adage. So if you have two quarterbacks, you have none, right? Yeah, right. So, and then I had a lot of experience on the food and beverage management side, back of the house, PNL, uh, PNL stuff, bookkeeping, accounting, payroll, marketing, branding, social media stuff. And, you know, I started taking that on as because I was just seeing invoices pile up, vendors wouldn't deliver because we weren't getting paid. And I'm like, hey, real quick, do we have anybody paying the bills here? He's like, no. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah. So I started implementing, you know, who's going to be our bookkeeper, who's going to be our person who's going to help develop our brand, who's going to do, um, you know, our accounting identity, our taxes and stuff like that. So initially we were both in there and, and I did that for four years or so. We worked side by side as chefs and it just got contentious. And then once we started realizing that we were going to open another location, I then um, focused more on the operational stuff. So that's when we had employment agreements drawn up and an understanding of who was doing what on paper, but it still never meshed. You know, he wanted to do some operational stuff and was digging, putting his hands in that. I was digging my hands in the culinary stuff. And it just, yeah, it's like your analogy, two quarterbacks and we had none. We were just a little bit too, uh, weren't meant to be together. All right. Anything else the listeners should know about this story about Pulpatina and Eastchester? You know, the, the, the story is I wish them the best. I, I think I put, you know, my heart and soul into that brand for a real long time. And it's a shame that it got real ugly at the end. But again, all those conversations that I had with, you know, and just talking to you is bringing it all back up. But those conversations that I had with uh, lawyers and architects and building uh, inspectors and city people, um, you know, that gave me the insight that I have today to, to kind of dig into my toolbox to, to use on a day-to-day -day basis. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it was an unfortunate breakup, but, it, you know, they're doing well, I'm doing well, and it's just life, you know, things don't always work out as planned. And I think the lesson there is you need to be okay with that because on some level, it could be teaching you something that you're ready for something else. And um, I think that was the case with me. Awesome. Well, appreciate the insights. And I've never been to Pulpatina, but now I want to go check it out. You're going to go, you're going to go to the Taqueria too in Larchmont when you're there. We can have lunch there one day. Awesome. Will do. All right. The last part of our show is called Retail Wisdom. I'm going to ask you three questions. And uh, it's our version of a rapid fire, but it's not fast. It's just our end of the show questions. All right, let's go. I'm ready. Think. One, best piece of commercial real estate advice out there for everyone. Come from a standpoint of giving. Um, 
and work and bring your value up front. Don't, I think people are often hesitant to offer too much of their value or their time to um, a client based on who they are, the size requirement or thing of that nature. Um, I say that because I've been that guy and I know what it feels like to get the partial treatment. And I know what it feels like to get the full treatment and the full treatment is always better. So I think providing your upfront value, whether it's in restaurants or in retail or in multifamily or investment, I think, um, you know, I choose social media as that platform. I choose, you know, podcasting as that platform, but um, you know, there are plenty of other ways to to do that. And I think providing that value upfront is major. All right, cool. Sage advice. Question two. Extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead? Blockbuster. Why Blockbuster? I just like the experience. I like going out. Whether they, you go there and you scan and get a card and it's now like a 500 square foot store and they give you the code to watch on your TV. But there's something nostalgic about that with me, like going out, picking up your Twizzlers and then bringing the movie home with you. Yeah. Now that it seems just a little cold now, but yeah, Blockbuster for sure. I, I love scanning through on demand, Netflix, Hulu, whatever, to try to find the right movie. I, I, I like actually have fun scanning through. My my wife's like, would you just choose one? Please just choose one. <laughs> the same things like documentary sports things and she hates that, so. so if, you go to Net, if you go to Blockbuster, you can get one of each and then you pick one night and the next, so that's. There you go. There you go. Third question. I am looking at the Kataki water bottle on Kataki's website or Kaktaki and it's got a it's got the the time on it it's got an auto lid it's this awesome new water bottle and what does the Kaktaki water bottle 32 ounce retail for dude I have well, first of all if this is anything like the hydro flask it's probably astronomical um it has what on it a, a clock and a it's got it's got this time so that you can see when you drank the water and so you know when you're drinking. It's got this auto lid. It's it's it, it's pretty 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 cool. Thirty two ounces. Thirty two ounces. One water bottle. Sixty nine ninety nine. You know you're way on their website. Nineteen ninety five. Wow. So yeah, check it out. The Kaktaki water bottle. It looks amazing. I am not a consumer of it yet but i'm gonna check it out i just recently heard about it because it's one of the hot water bottles out there right now your your, your next podcast is gonna be sponsored by them because <laughs> i drove flask these girls are kind of like my 12 year old daughter's carrying around it was like 40 bucks for a metal like nothing so I'm amazing well listen kyle it's been awesome learning about you it was really good to feel the the struggle of a true restaurateur and and understanding how that happened. And I think you brought some raw realness to the show that people need. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you've found a new passion and pivoted and taken those restaurant experiences into commercial real estate. I think you're, uh, you, you have a lot of value to bring. So we need to grab lunch sometime and you should come by our offices in Elmsford and uh, best of luck, man. Thanks for having me. It was great. I appreciate it. And yeah. Anytime you want to have lunch. I mean, I didn't even realize you guys were in Elmsford, so yeah, let's do it. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. 
If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us. This podcast highlights the stories behind deals from all perspectives, so it doesn't matter if you're a retailer, broker, attorney, or an architect. Contact Diane Lee at D-L-E-E at DLCMGMT.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.